with a daughter at Baylor, it's been a while since we've had the chance to go home to Broken Arrow to spend a little extended time with family and and friends, and we had the opportunity opportunity to do that this year, and and we had a good time, didn't we, Morgan? It was good. And uh, I suspect many of you have had a chance to spend these last days with friends and family and offer your thanksgiving to the Lord for those relationships that are so meaningful and important to you. And as I was able to meet some of you during or before worship, I know that there's still some family here. So uh, we have family and church family that are still away with family and friends and certainly praying for their safe return and be praying for you as many of you will head home this afternoon as we, uh, we look forward to another week to live and to serve the Lord. One of the, the big questions that we have to ask now that Thanksgiving is over, and as we begin to prepare for Christmas, is this question, is it a question that you and your family have already decided? The question, is real or artificial? Right? You have a real tree or an artificial tree? Uh, a few years ago, we had to move to a... a an artificial tree just because of the, uh, the allergies and those kind of things, although this year I think there's still debate. We haven't voted yet, but it may be close to, to having a real tree and the adventures of finding that tree and etc. But greenery, trees, Christmas trees, wreaths, garland is such an important part of our New Year's or of our Christmas and New Year's celebration because that evergreen reminds us of everlasting life. And it's part of the foundation that we find so much significance for in this Christmas season that through the birth of Christ that life everlasting is possible for all of us. And in a few moments after we share in the Lord's Supper, we will, we will share in the lighting of the greenery that forms this foundation for our preparation for Advent and Christmas season, which officially begins next Sunday. But it begs the further question about your spiritual life, about your relationships. Are they real or are they artificial? And so we ponder this question today as we give thanks for the gift of life. Life is so precious. Life is so priceless. Life, on one hand, is so strong, and on the other hand, is so very fragile. As I've had the privilege and honor to, to be with many of you during different seasons of rejoicing in life and different seasons of struggling with life, we have talked about at times how maybe there in that hospital room, how, how strong life is, how the will to live fights and, and just desires to hang on to every breath. And yet we've also discovered how fragile life is. How one nick of an artery during a surgery, how one chemical imbalance, how one little blockage, how, how one little thing can go wrong that can threaten and even bring life to an end. Because life, on one hand, is so strong and so powerful, 
but on the other hand is so fragile. And what we discover and what we must always remember is that whether times are good or whether times are difficult, that life is always a gift. It is a gift from God. So where do we go to understand this gift? Where does life come from? And in our tradition, we can go back to the story of creation in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. And if you'll turn with me there for just a moment, we'll look at the beginnings of life in this place. Genesis 2 verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God, Yahweh, had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground then. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Isn't that a beautiful picture, a, a powerful picture of this gift of life? We're formed, we're created from the substance of this earth, and yet God took that substance, that inanimate substance, and, and he breathed life into it. He breathed life that we might live. Then the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A beautiful picture of how life began for us. Formed out of the dust of the earth. Life breathed into us from the eternal, everlasting creator God. Placed in a garden where everything that we needed to live and to exist was provided for us. It's interesting here that for the first time in these first verses of Scripture, we are introduced to two trees. The first tree, the tree of life. If you'd allow me to say an evergreen of life, although I don't, I'm not suggesting it was an evergreen, but it gives us this picture, right, of, of, of a tree that is of life, of, that's always producing, it's always green, it's always bearing fruit. Because it is the tree of life. It's interesting that in Scripture, the tree of life is really only mentioned in three places. Here in the book of Genesis. And from that point on, the tree of life is not mentioned again until the book of Revelation. And in the middle, there are some Proverbs in the book of Proverbs that refer to a tree of life, not the tree of life, but a tree of life. And this morning, I'd like for us to, to do kind of a word study and look at all of the different places where this phrase, the tree of life, is found in Scripture, that we might have an understanding of what it means for us today. Now, again, it's interesting that it's paired with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when 
man eats from the, the tree of good and evil, things change. Life from that point on is different. But I wonder if we hold these two trees in tension or juxtaposition with each other, what does this tree of life imply as opposed to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And it seems to me that it implies an innocence to life. An innocence to life that has somehow been lost when the knowledge of good and evil becomes a part of our frame of reference. But this life in the garden is a life of innocence, a life of, of pleasure, of relationship with God and with each other. And somehow that is destroyed, is taken away when we experience the tree of life. Excuse me, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so we go in this creation story to the end of chapter 3, uh, Genesis 3, verses 22 through 24. And what does the story tell us? It tells us that man and, and woman, that, that once they receive the consequences of their own sin, uh, that's mentioned a few verses earlier, that they are sent out of the Garden of Eden. It seems to me that what we need to understand here is that in being sent away from the tree of life, they're sent out away from the tree of life, that they're sent into a world where death is now the experience that goes hand in hand with life on this earth. For you see, the Scripture in the New Testament is very clear that the wages of sin, the wages of our disobedience is death. And we see it here portrayed and pictured in Adam and Eve and man and woman being sent from the Garden of Eden and being restricted and forbidden from returning and ever again eating from the tree of life. Again, as I mentioned, we don't hear again of the, the tree of life until we get to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. But in the meantime, the book of Proverbs invites us to consider the meaning of the tree of life. Now, because of sin, we have a diminished capacity for that which comes from the tree of life. However, let me suggest that as we read through the, the Proverbs, that we can still experience a foretaste of this fruit that one day we'll be able to eat from again. But however, in this life, any taste is just a foretaste. The full taste, the full fruition of the tree of life will not yet be experienced until the end as described in the book of Revelation. So if you would, take your Bible and we're going to look at four Proverbs. And it's going to help us to have an understanding of, of this gift of the tree of life. And again, remember the, the, in the Proverbs... It's only a description of a tree of life, not the tree of life, but a tree of life. And if, if you'd allow me to make that connection, just suggesting that the fruit of the, the tree of life as described in, in Proverbs has some residual and has some foretaste of the tree of life that we look forward to in the future. Proverbs 3, verse 18. Proverbs 3, 18. She, this, this is a reference to, to wisdom, Wisdom is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Wisdom is a tree of life. Isn't that interesting that, that from the tree of life comes wisdom? As opposed to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what's the difference here between wisdom 
in the knowledge of good and evil, yet from the tree of life, wisdom is a fruit that would come from that. Understanding of life, insight into life. Wisdom is one of the fruit of the tree of life. Look over at Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs 11. Let's look at verse 30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. So what is the fruit of the tree of life? Well, it's the life of the righteous person. Well, what does the fruit of a righteous person look like? Well, we would say that a righteous person is someone who is good and who is just. But maybe we can draw another parallel into the New Testament where Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit. Maybe the fruit of a tree of life follows the fruit of the Spirit of God. Galatians 5.22 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And the book of Proverbs tells us that the life of the righteous, the, the life of a righteous person is a tree of life because the life of a righteous person puts forth love and joy and peace and goodness and kindness and gentleness. Oh, is, is that the fruit of life that you're sharing with others? And the writer of Proverbs in this beautiful proverb is suggesting that, that when our lives exude this kind of fruit, that it is a gift of life that we share with others as they encounter us and as they eat from the fruit of our own actions and of our own words. Are you sharing the, the fruit of righteousness with others? Are, are you a gift of life, a tree of life in this sense to those that you meet? Now turn over to uh, Proverbs 13, chapter 12. Um, chapter 13, verse 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Doesn't that make sense? That, that which you hope for, that which you desire, and, and that word desire here means to long for. That which you long for, when that is fulfilled, it's, it's so life-giving. Now again, we have to understand this desire. This isn't, isn't what I would call a lust. An, an inappropriate or sinful lust or desire for something that's not yours, but rather, I would say, is, is the desire that comes from wisdom. It's the desire that comes from a, a, a righteous life. The psalmist says it this way in, in Psalm 39, 4 and 5. He says, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. You see, the, the tree of life, when we experience that, is, is that life comes when our desires, our, our righteous desires, our, our wise desires, our desires in delighting in the Lord and trusting in Him, when those come true, Oh, it, it's, it's like eating that delicious, refreshing piece of fruit when you're thirsty and dry and hungry and how it just quenches your thirst and it quenches your, your hunger is what this desire, this, this hope 
is like a tree of life that we experience and we consume. Finally, if you'll turn over to Proverbs 15, verse 4. The last of, of this descriptions of a tree of life in the book of Proverbs. A soothing tongue is a tree of life. A soothing tongue is a tree of life. Is your tongue a tree of life to those that you speak to, to those that you talk to? Or is your tongue a tree of destruction? Is your tongue something that tears people down? Or is your tongue something that is, is like a tree of life? The words that you share. Interesting that the Apostle Paul kind of picks up on this idea, I believe, in Ephesians 4, verse 29, when he says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification, so that that word, so that those words will give grace to those who hear it. Do you see that? Our words are to be spoken as words of edification, of, of building up. Our words are to be words of, of grace. And when we speak in that way, our words become like a tree of life to those that would receive and hear them. So again, I'm not saying that the, the, the tree of life in Proverbs is, is the tree of life. What I'm suggesting is, is that the, these Proverbs here give us an indication of what it would be like to fully enjoy and to, to sup from this tree of life. And just a moment as we would reflect on that, the tree of life, or a tree of life is that which gives wisdom, is that which offers the fruit of righteousness, is that in which our desires, our righteous and our godly desires are fulfilled as we trust in Him. And the tree of life is that tree that offers soothing fruit from our words, from our tongue. So now let's turn the pages to Revelation Revelation chapter 2 is where we pick up again on this beautiful picture of a tree of life. Revelation chapter 2, it's to the church at Ephesus. If you'll remember, this is the section where John, in, in his vision, writes these short letters and, and words to the different churches. And in verse... For he says, but this I have against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. And then look at verse 7. He who has an ear, who's heard this warning, you've left your first love. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to these churches to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Isn't that interesting that we're reminded after all, after the Genesis creation story, how many thousand, couple thousand years maybe? Since the New Testament was put, to, Old Testament was put together, we have a reminder here that the tree of life is in the Garden of Eden. It is in the paradise of God. And those who overcome, those who overcome these, these sinful things, those who overcome the temptation to leave our first desire and our first love, which should be Christ, 
which should be God, those that can overcome this temptation and repent and do the deeds we did at first, those who overcome will once again be granted the privilege to eat of the tree of life. Now turn back to Genesis, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 22. The last chapter of Scripture. This beautiful, powerful vision that John has. Starting in verse 1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life. Clear as crystal. Coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of the street... On either side of the river was the tree of life. There it is. We, we are in that place where the tree of life exists and where it dwells, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. Wow. Here we are. In the presence of the tree of life. And what the scripture tells us is that the tree of life bears 12 fruit. And it bears it without ceasing. It, because it's evergreen, so to speak. It's ever producing. It's always alive. It's always fruitful. Because it's by the river of life. And life always flows into the tree of life so that it can bear its fruit. 12 fruits. 12 different fruits to nurture and to nourish those in the kingdom of God. This number 12 is a, is a powerful symbol. It's a, it's a powerful number in Scripture. It, it refers to the kingdom of God, to the paradise of God, to that place of eternity. And here we see in the reign of the kingdom of God, the tree of life bearing fruit to nourish and nurture the peoples, the nations of the world. But as we continue, the tree of life is not just good for food. The leaves, the leaves of the tree of life are good for the healing of the nations. So not only does the tree of life supply food for life to nurture and nourish us, but it also provides that, that medicine, that salve, that healing that we need as we experience the sin and the consequences and the, the curse of this world. So we read in verse 3 this beautiful, powerful picture that in the tree of life there will no longer be any curse. and We will be able to sup and to eat from the tree for eternity. Now go back up to 20, then go on down to continue on to verse 14. The last place where the tree of life is mentioned. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Oh, but pastor, how do we experience this, this tree of life? How do we gain access to this tree of life? And in chapter 22, verse 14, the scripture is clear. Those who wash their robes. Those who are cleansed. Those who are made clean. Those who are made righteous are those whose robes are washed and who can taste of the tree of life. The book of Romans, excuse me, in Revelation 12, 11, the scripture says, they overcame, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. 
So what does it mean to wash our robes? It means the recognition and understanding that we ourselves, you and I cannot wash our robes, but they must be cleansed and washed by someone who is greater than us. In Psalm 51, David cries out to the Lord after his recognition of his own sin. He cries out to God, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Purify me. Wash me so that I can be whiter than snow. Create in me, God, a clean heart. You see, even David understood that he alone could not cleanse his own robes, but that they must be cleansed by God himself. And so we're reminded of the scripture in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 that says, The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from our sin. John continues on to say, If we confess our sins, then He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us, to cleanse our robes of all unrighteousness. Isn't it interesting that this passage is written by John, who had a vision that we call the book of Revelation, and how this idea of cleansed, washed robes comes together in these two passages. You see, confession and repentance are the faith responses that bring cleansing to our lives as we trust and put our faith in Jesus Christ. And when we do that, what we discover is that we are no longer under the curse. We are no longer under the curse which was experienced in Genesis chapter 3. But now, in the future, one day, we will be able to sup and to eat and to experience the tree of life in all of its fullness. The food and the healing from the tree of life is a privilege for those who trust God and who live in the presence of His Spirit. Today, let me suggest that the Lord's Supper is a tree. It's not the tree of life, but maybe today for us it could be a tree of life for us. Through the bread and through the cup, we are offered fruit for nourishment. We are offered leaves for healing. So this morning as we prepare to share in the Lord's Supper, let us remember this. From Isaiah 53, as Jesus took bread and he broke that bread, it's the, the picture, the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, where in describing the suffering servant, the prophet Isaiah declares that he will be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, chastened for our well-being, and by his scourging, we are healed as you hold the bread, think of the suffering servant. And secondly, the cup. As you hold the cup, think of the sacrifice of sin one time for all that was made by the Lamb of God. For you see, the book of Hebrews tells us that it's not the blood of bulls and of goats that save us, but rather it is the sacrifice of the one who came. As we hold the cup, let us remember the sacrifice of the one who died that we might live. This morning, First Baptist invites all who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to join with us in His Supper. And in these moments, as the choir, as the orchestra come together, let us prepare our hearts 
to receive His Supper. And then as our choir orchestra, as they finish, then I would invite our deacons to come and make their preparations to serve us.